0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
1: 18 plus. It's the weekend of Friday, October 31st, 2014, and you're listening to the 20th episode of Screen Talk, available on iTunes, where we encourage you to review the show and subscribe to weekly updates. You can also reach us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AKStanwick. Welcome to the twentieth episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic of IndieWire, and I'm joined, as always, by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood. Twenty episodes, and it feels like generations. Time is flying,
2: and that's what it feels like with the uh, as we're getting into the thick of the awards season and all the invitations and. Events and you know, for folks like us, I mean, we're not complaining because we go to Cannes and we go to Telluride in Toronto. But um, what happens in in practice is that movies that we saw very early, that um, we covered the conferences, or we interviewed people, or we went to to the opening night party. Well, now they're doing the same thing all over again in New York, in your case, and in L.A. in mine, as they're promoting the movies and preparing to open them for oscar season
1: yeah you know i mean one of the things that i've really enjoyed about what we've been able to do with this podcast so far is that we're talking about oscar season but we're also just talking about movies and i've found that you know that these there are a lot of great movies in contention this year that we're talking about but the conversation is at once you know much bigger than that and also sort of you know, complementary to it. And there's just so many different kinds of movies to talk about each week. I mean, last week we were speculating about Interstellar, you know, as this potential Oscar movie, and that was one conversation we could be having. But now we've seen it, so we can have a different conversation all together. So, you know, each week brings another opportunity to really dig into the movies that are out there, and that's going to continue for a while with some of the other movies we still haven't seen. I would like
2: to challenge you on something about Interstellar.
1: I can't wait.
2: Your review, which was one of the first ones I read after I wrote my piece, Uh, I read yours and I read Scott Foundas' piece right away. And he raved. He just gave it an all-out rave. And and it was one of those cases where I'm reading this review and I'm going, how could he really like it this much? How could he? Because I have so many criticisms. And yours was so positive, too, but not as positive as his. And you gave it a B-plus in the end.
1: I did, because it's not a movie that I would say is completely successful at everything it's trying to do. But I found it to be sophisticated on the level of filmmaking and also satisfying... as a a piece of sentimental storytelling in a way that I can't remember seeing before. And I found that to be overall quite satisfying and very accomplished in spite of all kinds of different flaws. I mean, you know, with Gravity, there were all these caveats to the praise for that movie. You know, oh, it's beautiful. I love that
2: one unabashedly.
1: But it's it's beautiful, but the screenplay has problems or the science isn't correct or the situation is ridiculous, blah, 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 blah. I mean, with this one... I don't feel like the qualifiers really have as much of a place in the conversation as they did with that one. Because with Interstellar, you either kind of let this thing completely, you know wash over you. You have to
2: let it go. You have to have a complete suspension of disbelief. And yet,
1: the physics are are accurate. I mean, uh, like I said, you know, without having a PhD in... in, No, supposedly
2: they went all the way to the end of the world to Kip Thorne and everything else to make sure that it was accurate, but that doesn't mean that it... How do I explain this? There's a lot of lack of credibility nonetheless, even if the physics are correct.
1: Well, it's because Nolan is just not a great humanist and he doesn't write characters particularly well, but it's the first time I've really felt anything for any of those characters. And I think it's because... He's trying. I mean, you feel him wrestling against the colder side of him as a director. I agree with that. And, and the emotion works, and the reason the emotion works is because of the way time passes. Time is immovable in this movie. It's a time travel movie to some degree, but it's, it's about flexible, moving It's flexible, though.
2: It's not immovable. It's well, flex- it's, the science is there, but he's, he's, here's the thing. We read about we read about black holes, and we read about. We're giving away some spoilers now. I'm giving you some some alert here.
1: No, we we won't go into too many details because it's not even really possible. There's a
2: thing involving a black hole, right? And and there's a there's you know the physics are what they are, and time is what it is, and yet the movie manages to take advantage of those aspects of of what are possible. And, and manipulate them, and and there is a kind of, of delicious, I mean, this is what I love about Nolan, I and mean, it's like this, it's like Inception in that way. There are some mind-bending aspects to it that are really exciting and fun, just like 2001, but there are also these long, laborious, expositional, talking-head scenes that are so bad that I don't forgive them
1: at all? Well, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I, if this was a let's say a Twilight Zone episode, right? It might be one of the great Twilight Twilight Zone episodes. And I think context is everything here. You know, you're talking about it, essentially a genre movie. If you think about it as. He's trying to make 2001. No, it does not supplant 2001 on the spectrum of great science fiction cinema. But it is sort of a B-movie writ large, and I think that's what I find really remarkable about it. That's true,
2: and I agree with you. And I think one of the reasons why I was so tough on it, in a funny way, was because I went and looked at it. Not so much the way you're looking at it, but from the point of view, would it... Actually, I grant you it 's a blockbuster audiences are going to love it it 's going to be well warmly welcomed far and wide as a wonderfully entertaining movie. This is not an issue. I was looking at it from the point of view of what Oscars was it going to be able to get right. or which is I'm a
1: different get. conversation I mean, I and think that made
2: me much more critical of it
1: sure and that and, and I think that's also a valid conversation to be had about this movie, which is you know, to me, sort of an alternative blockbuster spectacle to some of the stuff we have to deal with, and that you know leads me to the problem of grading on a curve. But I think it's something worth addressing. At the same time, you know, in the context of talking about it, its Oscar chances. I mean, maybe maybe that counts against it as well. Is that it is sort of a blockbuster spectacle, and it has some of the flaws of a blockbuster spectacle in the writing department. And maybe that's maybe that's part Correct. of it. So let's talk a little well, bit about his is, Oscar chances.
2: You know, Nolan set himself a very high, you know, bar and 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 a problem that was not easy to solve. And he's 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 moving back and forth in time and and elaborating of the state of the world. In, you know, in the future when when it's heading for dystopia again and all sorts of of astronomical issues and astrophysical issues that have to be dealt with. But the thing that works is Matthew McConaughey and Jessica Chastain and the other actress who plays the young um, daughter, they are wonderful. And the through line of the movie, the the emotional through line, is is astonishingly powerful.
1: The fact that that those elements work, it sounds to me like what you're saying, and based on what you wrote, like this is a movie that is more... Uh, going to be seen by the Academy as a, as a showcase for performances than for Nolan or as a Best Picture contender.
2: I agree. I I, I do say that, and, and I think it'll get a lot of technical uh, nominations and could win. You know, it could win. The Gold Derby is predicting already, <laughs> not having seen all the other films that haven't been seen yet. You know, this is the typical issue. I mean, I have... I, I, I'm, the whole Oscar predicting game is so ridiculous in so many ways. Um, I take it seriously, I grant you, but it's just silly to say right now that in, that Interstellar is going to win five Oscars. Yeah,
1: know? but you know, I mean, it, it, it does seem like a no brainer to say that with respect to the technical categories, because what else would? an Oscar voter turn to. I mean it you know, it's just everybody's aware that this movie is an astounding technical achievement and the story around it is about the technology, the whole IMAX thing, seventy millimeter film, you know, I mean it just it feels like a shoe-in. Like what could possibly stand up against those things? I mean, there's still time to talk these things through. It just, you know, when it comes to a large voting body, it seems like at the very least that should be a shoe in. In terms of the the awards, you know, for performance and stuff, I don't know. I mean, that's, it seems like such a tough sell because, from my perspective, when I go to that movie, although I can appreciate the performances, they are not what I find to be so distinctive about the movie. It's, it's the, the kind of world it's built around them. It's interesting you
2: say that because, because, because as, as, as technologically sophisticated and adept as, as the movie is, if, if, if Matthew McConaughey and Jessica Chastain weren't so good, it wouldn't work at all.
1: No, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's And really all the bad.
2: other ones don't work. I mean, Anne Hathaway and, and Wes Bentley and, you know, there's some long... I mean, it's not their fault. It's not the actor's fault. But they're, even Michael Caine, the reliable Michael Caine, has to get through some of this crazy dialogue.
1: Well, again, I mean, I think context is everything here. And I'm willing to forgive the dialogue more than you, but I think the performances do that as well. I didn't need to... By that so much as I was just sort of enthralled by the pace that was surrounding it but I think you know it's a house of cards proposition the performances are fine I just think that this is a movie that you know if if someone was going to embrace it you kind of have to at least to some degree embrace the whole package you know if the performances are great in a ludicrous movie you know we could talk about that in just a second here you know maybe that's Maybe that's in some ways a better situation to be in. Is
2: that what you think of Nightcrawler?
1: No, I love Nightcrawler. Let's talk about The Theory of Everything.
2: You think that's a ludicrous movie?
1: Well, there's a couple of things about Theory of Everything. I respect that movie for what it is, and I don't want to come off as, you know, the cranky, icy writer who just, uh, you know, rejects anything that makes him feel something. I mean, first of all, I just said that Interstellar made me feel something. And certainly, The Theory of Everything does make you feel something in ways that are quite effective. Within the first 10 minutes at the world premiere of this movie, people were sobbing around me, and, and justifiably so, just to watch Eddie Redmayne perform this character gradually devolving into what we know Stephen Hawking to be now. I mean, I grew, my, my brother has cerebral palsy, and so I'm very familiar with, uh, you know, sort of the, the challenges of, of being in this kind of physical situation. I had a very personal experience watching that performance in that movie, and I respect it for that. I think it's a, it's a great achievement in, on that level. I think that as um, a, a piece in the New York Times pointed out this week, you know, that there's something to be said for the absence of science of the, in this movie And and the way in which it uses the fact that it's based on um, uh, Hawking's ex-wife's memoir as an excuse to not deal with the scientific achievements of this man in detail uh, to be sort of uh, a failure on the movie's part to really get at the essence of why it's an interesting story. Um, I'm
2: being very male-centric about this in my humble opinion.
1: Sure, I mean that—that's the challenge of, of of launching that critique, and yet the movie is built around his performance. He is the main character of that movie. It's not Felicity Jones. So to say, she that...
2: is the hero of the movie. She saves his life. Without her, he wouldn't exist. But the... without her, none of his work would have been possible. And that is why the movie is so deeply moving.
1: I did find that to be affecting, but, but, I mean, don't you think the movie is essentially from his perspective? I mean, at the no. end of the movie, we see his perspective.
2: You are a man. You are identifying with a man. You are saying that what's important about the man were his many, many achievements. That's not what the movie's about.
1: Well, it has to be about that to some degree, or else it wouldn't exist in the he's first famous? place. Well, absolutely, we wouldn't even be hearing this story if he wasn't movie Stephen Hawking. The
2: about the caretaker. The movie is about the person who actually looks after him.
1: Well, but the, 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 the movie
2: re- is about the extraordinary burden that this woman took on beyond the call of any duty because she was in love with this man and stayed with him for 25 years. When offered the opportunity to shut off his life support, she looked at the doctor who thought that this was an inevitability and said, no, revive him.
1: I have, I mean, I understand why that's moving, and I think those scenes work for what they are. What my my problem with that is that, to some degree, her in her relationship with him was based in all, her support for you know this, his what she found appealing about him, and to some degree that has to do with the way his mind worked, and we never get a chance to really understand that. It takes. His genius for granted. I don't think it has to do with the gender. It's a
2: lot of time spent on that. He's 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 putting you know equations on the wall. He's he's tapping. But that doesn't out.
1: mean but anything. I think we we've,
2: a... we've seen we've already seen. There's been two movies about him already, at least if not more. I mean, we've seen the Errol Morris film. We've seen. You know, maybe some people have seen the one where Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, you know, plays Stephen Hawking, which I think is hilarious. Ugh. But you know, I, I I think this is coming at it from a different angle and a more accessible one, if you like. And it's really a love story, so it's not about
1: the science. Well, I, I I look forward to continuing to discuss this one, and I want to make sure we talk about the, another movie opening this week. But I but I think that there it's an interesting dichotomy to be drawn there i think you know it's it shouldn't necessarily be an either or proposition and for me i felt like to some degree the movie was trying to be both things and it only succeeded at one thing but well, what's you know,
2: interesting is that it's basically it's how did this man survive it's a, it's a question of you know it's it's almost looking at it from the domestic perspective you know it's it's like how did he live how, to me, it was fascinating to learn that you know how he adapted from chair to chair to chair, or how he figured out how to communicate at each stage, or or how people helped him. You know, this is how he was able to function. He has twelve people helping him now, you know, in order to even exist. And you just want to think about about what's in his brain. Well, his brain is what's important to the world. But this story is about how did he survive. And it's supposedly I don't I I actually think it's interesting to question whether the movie achieves this. It's set out to achieve a balance between the two, according to the people who made it.
1: Right. Well, that's a that's a good way of putting it. Uh, Speaking of male points of view, we should talk about Nightcrawler, uh, because that's there's certainly uh, some stuff to dig into there. We've touched on it before, but I mean, I I really love this movie. I saw it for a second time. Uh, a few days ago at the New York premiere, which is a big event with a lot of stars present, and it played incredibly well. It's just, it's, a, it's a real crowd-pleaser, and yet it's so dark and unsettling. Jake Gyllenhaal, it's this power-hungry you know, social climber, and there's a scene in that movie where he actually blackmails uh, this producer at a TV network, played by Rene Russo, into sleeping with him, and he got a round of applause for basically... Doing this terrible thing, you know, and I think that to me is what's fascinating about that movie is that it—you kind of, on some level, are, are rooting for him because I know. of that. it's amazing
2: but, how they got you to do that.
1: But you're—you like this movie too?
2: Oh, I love Nightcrawler. I adore Nightcrawler. I think it's brilliant. Um, I went to see it, and and what—it was interesting. I saw it in Toronto, and and it 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 was before anyone. I saw it at the very first screening of it um, before anyone had been writing about it. So it was a question mark going in. Um, What's interesting to me is I was listening to um, Tony Gilroy's brother, Dan Gilroy, who's the writer director and Tony, who's the more famous and well-known filmmaker was a producer on the project. I was listening to, to Dan Gilroy talk about how he wrote the script and what he, how he saw the character that who is, it's easy to describe him as a sociopath. That's what a lot of people do. And they look at him a little more, uh, in a little more depth and with a little more complexity. He's basically a, an animal who has survived and is going to survive no matter what. And and Gilroy actually said that, that, it, that he could imagine a guy like this becoming, you know, the CEO of a major corporation <laughs> because of his ability to to push forward in a determined and relentless way without right. any emotion of any kind, you know.
1: Right. I would love to see Nightcrawl screened, you know, like it's some sort of corporate networking event you know and see if it, you know how, how people sort of respond to to the kind of sound bites that he has throughout this movie i mean it reads like he read the wikipedia page for uh you know business planning or something the way that he well, talks
2: according to gilroy that's the idea the idea is that he's completely self-taught right from reading you know online you know that that's his that's everything comes from He's obviously someone who was incredibly deprived and had no real parenting and no mentorship in his life. Like he was talking about how different it would have been if he had had some kind of mentor who could guide him. But he's he's a, he's an autodidact. And Rene Russo does not turn out to be the mentor he needs. No,
1: no not at all. Although he gets some, she's results. just as bad. No,
2: she's terrible. It, it,
1: there, everybody I loved her is evil. In this. I everybody, yeah, know. she's fantastic. I mean, everybody is is, is sort of twisted and, and has a devious agenda in this movie. That's why it's such an interesting indictment of you know where we're at right now. Nobody ever says the, the you know TMZ never comes up, but it's very much sort of in the context is the, the sort of media culture that we live in right now. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting. It's a
2: companion piece to Gone Girl in some ways.
1: It's true. It, it absolutely.
2: Although this it, is more reality based, I mean, this is less of a satire and and actually is suggesting that what we're watching is what really happens in real life. And apparently, it is. I don't watch these shows so much.
1: I mean, I think it, you know, it, it's a it's a subtler satire, might be one way of putting it. But uh, you know, it is playing on twenty seven hundred screens right now, so I'm very curious to see. How this movie does both commercially and then as, as the awards. They're
2: opening so. it. I think they've got a, a successful launch here. And one of the things I said out of Toronto was, in order for Jake Gyllenhaal to be a best actor candidate in a very competitive field, this movie's going to have to open up and do really well and become a, a big conversation piece, and that seems to be happening.
1: It's, I mean, it, you know, if you were to break down the, the best actor race right now, and it, it's an interesting set of candidates. Because on the one hand, you have somebody like Michael Keaton. It's this very, like, personal, uh, extreme kind of performance. But then Gyllenhaal is also another kind of extreme. It seems like Gyllenhaal would be the tougher sell, but maybe sort of a dark horse right now. Or do you think well, he's got a better shot? because,
2: show? I mean, one of the reasons the Gone Girl, you know, why isn't Ben Affleck in the conversation? He, did, he gives one of his best performances. That's because Gone Girl, at least from the point of view of the people in the academy, this is the only group of people that matters, is, 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 that, he's, is, is that that's a genre movie. That's a thriller. That's, that's an entertainment. It's a little bit of the problem that, that Interstellar has. And so, and, you know, sci fi is not their normal uh, genre. The Avatar is a big, a big exception to the rule. Um, so this one, this one is, and it didn't win Best Picture. Um, this one, Nightcrawler, is a B movie, too that's the problem. It's, yep. it's a, it's perceived as a low budget B movie. It's not, even if it's well, uh, shot, you know, by Robert Elizabeth, one of the great 50 P's, it doesn't turn into a big budget movie or, you know, it, it just isn't.
1: So, I mean, does that mean that it's going to be relegated to that original screenplay slot where some stuff sneaks in? That's not part of the bigger race.
2: You are correct.
1: Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> but you know, it's, uh, if it's in the conversation at all, I think it's worth something. That's another movie that, you know, we talked about the Gotham nominations last week. It's uh, nominated for uh, breakthrough director. And I think that, you know, if Nightcrawler is mainly remembered as just sort of a a nice surprise towards the end of the year, not, you know, one of the major defining movies of the year, that's still something. And I I hope it gets Dan Gilroy to keep making movies and not just writing them. Me
2: too. Me too. It was a big step for him to... To move from writing to directing, and he did he did very well.
1: So, in terms of other Oscar stuff that, that's been going on, there's the Ida nominations, which were which just came out a couple of days ago, and that sort of uh, shook up, I think, the documentary conversation a little bit. You want to? Uh, well, it's interesting.
2: That? There's we talked about Doc NYC, and and Tom Powers, the programmer there, put together a list of 15 films. And anyone who wants to know what the you know the doc shortlist for the Oscars might look like would do well to make sure they've seen those 15 films. But this IDA group, it's all all about influencing the Oscar voters, in this case the doc branch, who are all trying to plow through their stacks of screeners, and they're supposed to each see like 20% of each stack, and then they're assigned that group, and then above and beyond that they can see whatever they want. And and go to festivals and see things in that way, but they're all trying to get through them, and so which ones are they going to watch? You know, and and you know, so it has it has a bit of an impact on 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 what the consensus titles are going to end up being, and so in this case, um, the the movies that that were expected included uh, Citizen Four and uh, The Wonderful of uh, Finding Vivian Mayer and and the uh, other uh, one that was not expected that didn't turn up was was life itself.
1: That was very interesting to me, and it made me wonder if you know, because you know, this is these are documentary filmmakers we're talking about. If maybe, you know they don't see the filmmaking in that movie being as much a part of its appeal the way that they do with some of these other films. Although, you know, Steve James gonna, is great.
2: I but. think it's a question of... of, uh, of I think it's still going to be in the Oscar race. I can't imagine that they're going to leave it out. But... but um, Oh, and then the third one that they did include um, that I think is, is incredible is the Fim ben Benders The Salt about, of the Earth. Amazing movie. Well, it's interesting there's two movies about photography... Hey.
1: Sure, and, and Marshall Curry's Point and Shoot is an interesting one, uh, which is actually opening this week, so I can talk about it a little bit more in a little bit. But, you know, that's another one where it's, you know, Marshall Curry is a filmmaker who's had a certain amount of momentum in the doc community, and it, it does make me wonder if, you know, it's sort of like you—you you could come up with a hierarchy of, of which which filmmaker has the most respect from their peers, and then start to work out the equation from there. You know, sometimes
2: it goes for you, and sometimes it goes against you. I think Rory Kennedy uh, did one of her best documentaries, "Last Days in Vietnam," and on some level, it's almost like they take her for granted, as if you know she somehow has. You know, she's like Alex Gibney. She's got a whole team of people working with her, you know, to to make these great documentaries. And and yet they, you know, somehow she sometimes gets in and sometimes she doesn't.
1: Yeah. Although, I mean, you know, Citizen Four, it's like a total no-brainer, you know, in that sense. I mean, can anybody doubt that this movie is is still... The absolute front runner for best documentary. I mean, it's just so.
2: No, I'm I'm afraid it probably has overta especially now. Uh, but we'll see. Life itself is has emotion and has has a certain uh, tug on on people's affections, having to do with what Roger Ebert went through. So, um, and the love story at its at its heart. So I think I think it's still a strong contender. Just as Keep on Keeping On, which was left out, um, is still something that that people respond to emotionally. And that's from a first-time filmmaker. And, and finding Vivian Mayer is, is not from established filmmakers either.
1: So we've covered a lot of stuff with respect to Oscar season as it stands right now, but we also opened up for the first time to uh, get questions from our listeners since it's our 20th episode. And very happy to see we got a <laughs> lot of responses. Um, and uh, we, we can't do all of them. We're going to do a good amount. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we may as well start with one that doesn't really have any relevance to this year's Oscar race since it's always nice to kind of widen the lens a little bit, and this one comes from Connor McGregor, who writes, Do you think Jennifer Lawrence, in the long run, will follow Meryl Streep's pattern of gaining, getting a lot of Oscar nominations and perhaps wins? It's an interesting question.
2: It is an interesting question, because I think of, of Jennifer Lawrence and Meryl Streep as being Two very different kinds kinds of actors. I think of Meryl Streep as a character actress who, in a if you like, in, in a beautiful leading woman's body, um, you know, who 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 became a, a movie star of a certain kind, but not in the way that Jennifer Lawrence is a movie star. I would put Jennifer Lawrence in more of the Julia Roberts category, where where it's the personality of the actress that infuses every role that she plays. And it doesn't mean she's not a good actor. She is an amazing, natural performer who completely inhabits, and so is Julia Roberts, completely inhabits every role that she plays. But she's not a chameleon or someone who does accents or, you know, the kind of extraordinary technician, um, you know, actor's actor that Meryl Streep is. Is she going to continue to get nominations? Yes, in that sense, we will see Jennifer Lawrence um, getting nominations from, for years to
1: come. Yeah, I mean, I think if the comparison is just with Meryl Streep's pattern of, of getting nominations, it makes sense, and she's very different. I also think that she's much more you know, contemporary, which makes sense for a young star at this moment, but the fact that people sort of perceive her identity off screen as much as they perceive her identity on screen, you know, it just seems like the sort of world that we live in now where people scrutinize you and pay very close attention to what you do at every moment and her ability to kind of take advantage of that. And, you know, she's, she's great on talk shows, et cetera, I think is, is part of the reason why it seems like she's got a great appeal, uh, sort of career in the, in the public eye ahead of her. Cause she's able to navigate that and actors who can't now have a much harder time, so that's also something to keep in mind. There's a great piece on Vulture about, about her this week and how she topped their, uh, their most valuable stars list. And I think that, that also shows that you know she's sort of just getting started. I mean just it's amazing what she's done so far and she's so young. So uh, moving on, we have Nicholas Jim who asks, how important is it for a movie to be released during Oscar season in, in uh, quotes, which I appreciate when it comes to Oscar chances. For example, how would a movie like The Grand Budapest Hotel be higher in the predictions if it was released now instead of March? Hmm. Well, I would say that it would have a harder time if we were assuming that everything that is opening this fall is opening this fall and Grand Budapest Hotel shows up because it's a very peculiar, idiosyncratic movie that could easily be dismissed based on what people expect from Wes Anderson even though it's a deepening of his brand in a lot of ways and so by releasing it earlier in the year it had much more room to stand out it was also commercially successful and stayed in theaters for a long time so it's a nice movie to reintroduce to the conversation now whereas I think it would be lost in the clutter if it came out right now but what do you think?
2: Well um, I I agree with everything you just said Um, and you should expect to find a, a huge Um, return of this movie. I mean, Fox Searchlight knows exactly what they're doing. They're not sitting around on their hands. There will be uh, a a new uh, focus on this movie, and they will bring it back. And hopefully, I'm sure, they are counting on folks like you and the other critics groups. uh, The New York Film Critics are going to be voting fairly soon, in a few weeks, Um, to bring it back into the conversation. They kind of need that to happen, actually. But the other question that this raises is the question of what the Oscar predictors are saying versus what is actually true. Right. And so, you know, one must keep in mind that the Oscar race ebbs and flows and, and attention moves from one movie to another and... There's an opening, and if it's like anything else. It's like publicity and and uh, PR, and and people going on talk shows, and and you know reviews coming out. And there's just a million different things that come and go as the movies um, ebb and flow. And this particular thing with Grand Budapest Hotel coming back hasn't happened yet, and there's still time for all still of that. Time. Occur.
1: yeah i certainly hope it's still in the conversation so we got two questions we'd like to share from jeffrey edwards from melbourne because jeffrey edwards from melbourne asked some really good questions the first one is if timothy spall ends up winning the bafta or best actor do you as is reasonably possible think that that will put him in a strong position to essentially claim the fifth best best actor slot at the oscars uh, you have some way into this because there's been some BAFTA developments most recently that you've been following.
2: Oh well, ba- basically the the trick with BAFTA, there happens to be a, the Britannia Awards or tonight, which is yet another um, chance for uh, the Brits to toot their own horn, you know, in Hollywood and and put some spotlight on people like Eddie Redmayne and you know who they're rooting for and and Timothy Spall and so forth. But the thing is fall kind of needs that help. He needs to win uh, the BAFTA, and he needs because he did he did win the Best Actor at Cannes, but that's not enough. Mr. Turner has to make a splash of its own now, and and you know it it's got it, and it it didn't feel we talked about this. It didn't feel like it made a very big splash at the fall festivals, and that's because no. it needed its splash in Cannes back in May. So you know, Mr. Turner's going to open. The Academy's going to see it. They're going to appreciate how beautiful it is. Spall, though, is, I think, a long shot now because the, unless he wins the BAFTA, that will help him. Because there is a, the, the, the British contingent of the Academy is sizable and BAFTA impacts them and has an impact on the rest of the Academy.
1: I also would just add that uh, you know I, I went up to the Chatham Film Festival, it's actually called Film Columbia, over the weekend, which is a, a festival run by Peter Biskin and, and Lawrence Cardish, and uh, they showed Mr. Turner up there as sort of their surprise sneak, and that's sort of a largely over 60, a lot many sort of retired people live up there and so forth. And that's a certain kind of uh, contingency for that film. It didn't play super well. I mean, people were not over the moon about that movie. I think they found it to be kind of lethargic and, and uninteresting in parts. And I, I do wonder if that may hurt the performance chances as well, that it's a movie you can respect more than enjoy for a lot of people. And, I
2: that's you know, true. And I think that's the problem that that movie... Is, is going to face. Uh, so I would give it more likelihood, um, as extraordinary as Ball's performance really is, and I do think it is extraordinary. Um, I, and I'm a huge fan of this movie, I love it. I, I absolutely will put it on my 10 best list. Um, I think it, it's more likely that the Academy is going to go for some of the more uh, technical nods this time, you know, art direction and costumes, especially.
1: So Jeffrey Edwards from Melbourne also asks for our opinion on what has happened with Sweet Francais, which is not a film that I've seen, but uh, it's uh, it's a film that does not appear to be part of the situation in, in, in our in our um, even though it's a Weinstein film it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have much uh, momentum going. Uh, what Weinstein,
2: the Weinsteins do is they go and they put together a whole slate of movies that. They think have potential of one sort or another, and they have the luxury but i I think what's going on right now they have the luxury of of picking and choosing the ones that they're going to really go with in a giving in any given year as their Oscar contenders now usually they would have more than they have this year, assuming that St Vincent isn't going to gain any traction, and assuming that maybe big eyes may not become an oscar contender they've got imitation game and that's about it what if sweet Francaise was any good it in their view i'm not judging it i haven't seen it they would have it out now is my point it does seem like you can read between the lines there right it either needs to be edited more or they're going to wait and introduce it in can or they have a plan but putting it out now is not part of it
1: so that we can set that one aside and see what happens in the coming weeks and months. In the meantime, let's take one more question. This one's from Twitter because we want to make sure to sort of validate the Twitter feedback we get and we encourage people to do that more. It's from at Grantman2011. He asks, what are Whiplash's chances in the award season? Do you think critics will come back for it? I mean, frankly, I think Whiplash, you know, it's one of the better directed American films of the year. Is it one of my favorite movies of the year? There's so much stuff that it just makes it really hard for me to rank this movie which i find to be really fun and and different in a lot of ways in terms of how it deals with music culture and in sort of youth aggression and so on uh and and uh you know student teacher relationships i think a lot of it's really impressive but it's it, it, at the same time there are, there are things that hold me back from being as enthusiastic as i am about a lot of other stuff and i think that a lot of critics feel similarly that it's really more than anything else a showcase for miles teller on the one hand but on the other hand really jk simmons is doing his best work ever and so that also seems to be the case with award season, where he's sort of a shoe in for supporting actor, less so everywhere else.
2: Appreciate. I think he'll win. I think he'll win Best Supporting Actor. I really do. Which Even is great. Though, Edward Norton will give him a run for his money. Right. Um, uh, I I I don't disagree with you. I'm I'm wondering if the slot that you wanted to give tonight crawler. Might not go to Whiplash, you know. Screenplay,
1: it, you mean? It could
2: be the same. I call it the margin call slot, mm. you know. So, so I, I think that the writers, especially, but the thing is, it's really well written, it's really well directed, and really well edited. And and um, but the weird thing about it, and this is why it it may not register, it's not doing well at the box office. Mm. It kind of needs to be a hit. It needs to be a splash. And there's something not connecting to audiences. Now, one theory uh, brought up by um, my box office guy, Tom Bergman, is, is that it's, it, it was a bad title. Now, sometimes it, you just go, what? You know, a bad title could have that kind of impact? Because I've seen the movie play with audiences, and it right. really plays. Right. incredibly well yeah so why isn't this word of mouth just spreading like the wind and sending people into the theaters this it's is true
1: just, it, whiplash is not an inviting title the way something else not be. at all no.
2: and no one knows the jazz reference
1: right no, except it's, a few it's a, it's a tough one it's a tough one well in, in spite of all that it's it's still out there and playing around and who knows if there'll be some kind of second wind situation going on critics Quickly. need to
2: help it it's what you're saying. If that's true, and and the critics are not going to rise to this movie's um, defense, then it, then it then it won't happen. I,
1: I I find it unlikely that Whiplash will be winning Best Picture at a lot of critics groups, but you know, too. there's a lot of inexact science to this stuff. We can dig into later because you know the way the voting. But so he works could be is...
2: an emerging. But he's not a first-time filmmaker, so he's not going to get the the um no, that first feature prize. Right.
1: Right. So, uh, speaking of of, of potential first features, we talked about Nightcrawler opening this week. Uh, In terms of other stuff that's opening, I would also add a plug for Marshall Curry's Point and Shoot, which we mentioned before. Uh, It's this really neat movie that's based on uh, the experiences of uh, a young man who went to Libya with a camera... Uh, in various other parts of the Middle East, just sort of on this adventure trip to make movies or become a war photographer or whatever. It's sort of this free willing expedition. Abandons his girlfriend. He's not exactly the most likable guy, but he's got an interesting sense for adventure that I think is infectious. And he winds up showing up basically in the midst of the Arab Spring as the Libyan Revolution is taking place, and he, he's imprisoned for months at a time. So we have footage from both before and after that prison experience, and there's animation to sort of replicate what went on once he was behind bars. It's a really remarkable movie that in some ways almost plays like a found footage uh, take on the Arab Spring and also, I think, engages with the the simplistic notions of, of what that actually is from a Western perspective because this guy had no idea what he was getting into and it, and it almost takes his life. So it's definitely worth checking out. It opens in New York this week and it will be expanding in the coming uh, weeks uh, to other places. Um, and, of course, the Jean-Luc Godard film is in theaters now. Goodbye to Language 3D. Not for everyone, but if you're looking for an interesting challenge, you can't do much better than, you know, this this legend of the French New Wave once again, pushing the medium to these very bizarre angles. Uh, you know, that being said, we will not be talking about this movie in the Oscar conversation. So you've got to figure out what your priorities are. But uh, if you're looking for something completely different, goodbye to language is definitely your best bet. So on that note, the next time we talk, once again, we will have the opportunity to be in the same city. I'll be coming out to L.A. and we'll be doing jury duty together at AFI Fest. Which is starting on Thursday, so super have excited. Have you started
2: about that. watching your new auteurs yet?
1: Oh God, if I if I admit that I haven't, they're going to come after me. But I guess I may as well be transparent. Um, I've seen a few things, and uh, you both
2: saw the Tribe, I guess. That's,
1: that's right, and um, I saw the Wonders at Cannes, and there's a couple others that, that look appealing. Um, so I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about not on this podcast before uh, choosing a winner. There, uh, we'll also be able to talk about a most violent year, J.C. Chandra's film, which is the opening night film uh, starring Oscar Isaac so once again another opportunity to come back to this podcast in a week with another movie on the table that may or may not change the tenor of our conversation so I can't wait and let's keep it going another 20 I'm looking
2: forward to that movie I have a great deal of respect for J.C. Chandor
1: I do too and and, um, whether or not uh, we agree about it I'm sure we'll find something to uh, debate heartily next time (laughs) till then Take care.
0: Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun! Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.